Okay, uh, this presentation is meant to be an overview for the lecture, which will actually be on Tuesday, over metabolic and muscular adaptations to exercise. And uh, we'll go ahead and go from there. So just an overview of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, methods for assessing VO2. We're going to specifically look at some different laboratory analyzers that are available as well as some portable analyzers and the typical metabolic analyzer loop. We'll then look at uh, techniques associated with designing a resistance training program uh, in terms of specifics and exercise mode, and we'll finish with talking about conditioning for the uh, elite level athlete. These are some uh, pictures of the various uh, lab-based metabolic analyzers that are available on the market. And all of them work under a very similar principle, but each provides some unique type of function, and in turn, uh, this affects the price of the instrument. Uh, to give in perspective, uh, I believe the uh, unit, the uh, Viasis Oxycon Pro, is one of the most expensive metabolic carts on the market. I think it lists price for about $130,000, and then the price goes down from there to the to the level of the Parvomedics True One, which is uh, what we actually have in our laboratory. These units demonstrate some of the portable metabolic analyzers that are available on the market. Uh, there's really three main companies that make these: uh, Viasis, Cosmed, and uh, MedGraphics. And the the principle behind these, I think the Viasis picture shows it the best, is this is designed to be a metabolic cart that can be worn by the subject to collect real-time data. This is particularly useful if you're doing some sort of field study. The, uh, for instance, the COSMED K4 has been used in a num number of studies where subjects have worn this during a, an actual marathon performance. So you can get some indication about how uh, VO2 and RER changes during this type of performance. In general, these uh, work on the same type of principle as the full-size metabolic carts, just on a much smaller level. Also, in general, they tend to have more parts that have to be replaced on a regular basis. This diagram is meant to depict the typical metabolic analyzer circuit. And so the way this works is, as you exercise, a mouthpiece uh, connected to the individual's mouth is used to collect expired air. And expired air is then used to determine the volume. So essentially the volume of the expired air. This is collected then in a mixing chamber. And from the mixing chamber, the metabolic cart will actually use sensors to detect the concentration of oxygen and the concentration of CO2 in the expired air. From that, uh, VO2 and VCO2, as well as RER, can be calculated using the Haldane transformation equation. So you may be asking, um, if you're measuring, making your measurements in expired respiratory air, or the air you're breathing out, how are you able to determine O2 and CO2 concentration and relate those to the actual concentration of oxygen that's being used, which would be the VO2, or the concentration of CO2 which is being produced, which would be the VCO2. And the answer is that the analyzer knows what the concentration of atmospheric O2 is. And the difference between atmospheric O2 and expired O2 is explained by the amount of oxygen that's being taken up by the body during exercise. 
And again, in a similar way, we know the, the CO2 concentration of atmospheric air, and we know the concentration of CO2 in the expired air, and thus we can calculate uh, the amount of CO2 which is being produced by the body during exercise, which is again reflective of the VCO2 value. Keep in mind that anytime you see the V in front of a gas uh, name, this essentially just means volume. So we have the volume of O2, volume of CO2. And then obviously if we know the VO2 and the VCO2, then essentially we're able to uh, calculate the RER by doing some basic division. So any questions about the metabolic analyzer circuit? And again, you know, keep in mind that for the most part, the uh, metabolic analyzer circuit is very similar whether you're looking at a laboratory-based machine or a portable machine. Okay, um, so now we're going to talk a little bit about resistance training uh, design. And uh, this, these are some of the specifics we look at when it comes to designing a resistance training program. We know that muscles must be exercised near the peak tension for increases in strength. And I alluded to this response a little bit in our last class meeting when I talked about the importance of uh, applying progressive overload to the body. So as the muscles get stronger, it's very important to actually go in and apply increasing amounts of resistance to the muscles in order to improve strength. A second factor is that there's no optimum, optimal training program. And if you look at most fitness magazines, they'll have the workout of the month in their magazine. And it's important to remember that there really is no optimal workout of the month or uh, optimal workout. So the key is to pick things and pick exercises which best suit you or best suit who, the goal of the person you're training. Uh, for instance, in most cases, uh, most individuals will allow three, have exercises done on three to four days per week with rest days in between. So it wouldn't really be a good idea to do a bunch of bicep curls on a Tuesday and then come back and do a whole lot more bicep curls on a Wednesday because that would not allow the body time to recover. And if it didn't have time to recover, that would in fact, in fact impact strength gains. The, uh, the second thing that's pretty common in strength training programs is to separate um, exercises that work the upper and the lower body. And one of the reasons those tend to be separated is because uh, essentially people are trying to make an efficient use of their time. So you certainly could do a workout where you do eight to 11 exercises that work all the major muscle groups in one session. That session may end up requiring you to do uh, 90 minutes to two hours of exercise if done properly. So in many cases, people will separate upper and lower body exercises or what they call uh, the front muscles on the front side of the body versus the muscles on the back side of the body. And essentially what they may do is they may do an exercise session on a Monday, which is the upper body, Tuesday, which is the lower body, and then come back on Wednesday or Thursday and do the upper body again and then the lower body again on Friday. And in doing so, essentially when the lower body is being worked, the upper body is recovering and vice versa. When the upper body is being worked, the lower body is recovering. So again, it's a, it's a pretty effective way to maximize uh, resistance training responses and minimize the amount of time required for the gym. The, uh, the other thing that's important, and this may or may not be important depending on how the person's training, 
So if you're recreationally active and uh, you're just trying to build overall muscle fitness, it's not really as important the muscles that are being involved. But certainly if you look at some different types of athletes, whether they be strength athletes or more um, anaerobic type athletes, it's important to remember that you should work the same muscles in the same way as they would in competition. So, for instance, if you're looking at uh, something like an offensive lineman who has very quick power types of activities, then it makes a lot of sense to have them do repetitions that mimic the activity they would have to do during their competition. There wouldn't be a whole lot of sense for just doing exercises which have very slow movement patterns associated with them and don't mimic the actual performance environment. And again, this is something that comes back to specificity. So if you want to if you want to get really strong, the most effective way to do that is to design a program which maximizes the amount of weight that you're lifting in a given repetition as opposed to actually stretching that out over a longer period of time. Any uh, any questions about um, the these basic concepts of resistance training design? Okay, uh, these two uh, these uh, these bulleted points here are meant to uh, demonstrate the differences between some common resistance training modes. So the first is free versus machine weights. And based on what I said in class, we know that the strength gains are very similar whether the individual is using free weights or machine weights. Some of the common arguments that you see for free weights is that free weights pr produce greater movement variability and specificity. And free weights also contribute to the building of balance and stabilization because the body has to actually work to maintain the force being lifted. And those are both very valid points, and those are very valid points that free weights supply to the body that machine weights cannot. With that said, if you're looking at a beginner, the most effective way for a beginner to exercise would be to utilize machine weights because they're much safer in general than free weights. As the individual progresses in their training program, they may eventually decide to shift over and combine free weights with machine weights. But there's uh, also no problem or no issue with remaining in the uh, machine weight uh, world because you still do get uh, strength gains associated with those. The uh, second aspect of resistance training modes is uh, the idea of combining uh, strength training with aerobic training programs. And what we know is that in general programs that combine these two elements tend to have lower gains in strength than doing strength training alone. And again, this, this feeds back to what I talked about on the previous slide, which is related to overload. The more overload you provide to the muscle, the stronger it will get. So in the case of a mixed program, you're actually taking time away from the strength gaining exercises in order to do the aerobic program. And in doing so, that means you're applying less overload to the muscle, and thus you'll have less improvement. Also, uh, in general, if you're going to combine these two elements, it's typically recommended that they be mixed such that they're done on alternate days. Also, in some cases, you will see people do a short aerobic exercise as a warm-up for a resistance exercise training session, and that's really not what's going to impact um, strength gains. Really, what's referred to here is essentially if you were doing uh, an hour of treadmill running, and then you were doing a, weight, a heavy weight session to increase muscle strength, that would probably be an issue. 
So the key is that, uh, you know, and this isn't really talking about a recreationally active individual. Uh, somebody who's recreationally active, it's perfectly okay to blend uh, resistance training with aerobic training programs. However, someone who is really trying to cause significant increases in muscle strength, they should really work to uh, design a program that is effectively meeting their needs. All right, so the uh, the last thing that we're going to talk about this evening is uh, the conditioning designed for elite-level athletes. And when you look at the training of an elite-level athlete, it's really broken down into three phases, uh, what we consider the off-season conditioning phase, the pre-season conditioning phase, and the in-season conditioning phase. And it doesn't really matter the time of year that the exercise is done. That's the timing of the actual season is just going to dictate when these periods will fall. In off-season conditioning, some of the key aspects that we try to achieve is we try to design exercise in such a way that it prevents excessive weight gain and primarily excessive fat gain. We don't really care if they gain excessive amounts of lean mass. We just don't want them to gain any fat mass. A second uh, objective is to maintain muscle strength and or endurance. A third aspect is to maintain bone and ligament strength. And a fourth aspect is to maintain skill level. During the preconditioning or preseason conditioning phase, the objective is to increase the maximum of the energy system used in that particular sport. So if you're looking at a, an offensive lineman, you really need to be trying to train the body such that you're maximizing the ATP PC system, whereas perhaps another uh, um, position on the field, such as a wide receiver, defensive back, or linebacker, you may be working to train more of the anaerobic glycolysis systems. So it largely depends on the actual position that the individual plays. During the in-season conditioning phase, the objective would be to maintain uh, fitness level. So one thing and one common mistake that some uh, strength coaches or even uh, coaches make during um, in-season conditioning is they'll actually try to build some muscle strength or build some anaerobic endurance and really, for the most part, if you attempt to do that during the actual competitive season, you're most likely to reduce performance. So it, it is possible that you could get some gain in those systems, but really that's going to be at the uh, expense of performance. And so really, for the most part, the most effective thing to do is just design an in-season conditioning program that maintains the level of fitness the individual has. All right, so that kind of wraps up today, um, which was just meant to give a brief overview of the metabolic and muscular adaptations to exercise. And uh, that was a pretty short one here today, but um, I appreciate it. looks like we've got four people that came today. I appreciate that. Thank you all for coming. And uh, sorry for the short notice. It's just uh, this is usually how it ends up working out. But in any event, uh, I would be happy to take any questions that you might have uh, regarding any of the material we've talked about so far for exam two. If you have any questions, you can feel free to text those to the left and I'll be happy to answer them. Thank you again.
so good good question, uh, Brian. Um, the answer is sort of. Um, within the muscle cell, like many tissues of the body, there's a collection of stem cells. And uh, these stem cells are undifferentiated cells, and they are given a hormonal or um, other signal. And that signal actually tells the, the stem cells in muscle to differentiate into myofibrils. And the stem cells ultimately come from the process of cell division, but uh, it is not actually cell division or mitosis that contributes to their transformation into mature myocytes or myofibrils. Um, so great, uh, great question about um, why does a trained individual need in-season conditioning? And uh, the, 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 I guess the real, uh, real thing to think about here is if you think about, uh, I don't know how much you know, I, I, usually I end up falling back on American football because I know the most about that sport and understand the most about how it works. And if you look at individuals in that sport, one thing that you find is that the, the key objective that coaches make during the actual uh, practice sessions when they're in season is to prepare for the upcoming game of the week. And this includes uh, exposing the offense to uh, plays that the opposing defense may run and exposing the defense to plays that the opposing offense may run. This also comes, uh, the, also the other objective is a lot of times they look at tendencies within the other team's approach to the game, and they try to predict what they do and, and get a solid game plan that works. What you'll find is that during uh, the process of doing those things, while those definitely are important to skill and definitely important to the preparation for the upcoming game, what they often fail to do is they often fail to provide subsequent conditioning that's needed to maintain the body during the competitive season. And that's where the role of the strength coach or other uh, exercise professional really becomes important because uh, really you have to work with the coaching staff to build in some exercise sessions just to maintain the level of uh, development that the individuals have. Does that make sense? Okay, so you're talking about muscle strains here, and the answer is really uh, strain is a, depends on the severity of the strain, but uh, the strain is essentially associated with uh, structural damage to the muscle, very similar to the exercise-induced or DOMS response that we looked at in the previous class meeting. And basically that strain is associated with the damage of healthy tissue. The immune system will clear that damage, and it will be replaced by new muscle cells in much the way that I was describing to Brian just a moment ago. And so essentially you have stem cells in the skeletal muscle which differentiate into new myofibrils. And then it heals and really for the most part you're not left with any kind of scarring in the tissue. The, uh, the muscle cell itself will recover and depending on the severity of injury and the amount of exercise you're able to do during the injury, it may be weaker than it was before. Again, it depends on the severity of the strain.
Okay, uh, so Brian, real quick, um, basically troponin and tropomyosin, they, uh, they play a key role. And that key role is that they mediate the binding between actin and myosin. And when you release, essentially when you stimulate the muscle with a nervous signal, this causes the sarcoplasmic reticulum to release calcium. Calcium will diffuse over, it will bind to troponin, and in binding to troponin, it causes tropomyosin to shift, which reveals the active site on, um, on actin, okay? Once the active site on actin is revealed, then myosin, the myosin head, will actually bind to the actin molecule. And this binding of actin and myosin is what causes the, quote, power stroke to occur. The power stroke causes the sarcomere to become shorter and, more specifically, the muscle cell to become shorter. And so really the role of actin is actin is a stable uh, structure which is moved by myosin in order to cause skeletal muscle contraction. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind with respect to skeletal muscle contraction is that when you look at myosin and, more specifically, the myosin head, the myosin head has two binding sites and only two binding sites. And the way it works is that you can only bind one site at a time. One of those binding sites is for actin, and the other binding site is for ATP. So either myosin will be bound to actin or it will be bound to ATP, but not both. So in situations where the muscle cell is relaxed, during relaxation, calcium is taken back up by the sarcoplasmic reticulum, troponin and tropomyosin shift their position, and they functionally block the active site on actin. This prevents the interaction between actin and myosin. And if you were to guess what's happening to the myosin head at that time, again, with its two binding sites, it wouldn't be bound to actin. It would be bound to ATP. Does that, um, does that make sense, what actin is actually doing?
Okay, uh, Brian, uh, good question. Um, this is largely dependent on a couple of different factors. If you look at someone that is uh, physically inactive or untrained, not accustomed to doing uh, strength training exercises, what you'll find is that when they initially start to do strength training exercises, the muscle tend or the muscle spindle and the Golgi tendon organ are extremely cautious and conservative, meaning that when they just start to detect increases in tension in the muscle, they will shut the muscle contraction down. And in shutting the muscle contraction down, that will actually um, potentially protect the muscle from injury. Keep in mind that the reason that they're doing this is because they are not accustomed to doing this type of exercise. However, as the muscle gets stronger and gets accustomed to doing this type of exercise, you get a reduction in the output from the muscle spindle and the Golgi tendon organ. And this effectively means that uh, you get an increase in muscle strength because the muscle is being less guarded about the way it's allowing it to contract. So I guess the question, your question is related to time-wise of its activation. And honestly, I don't really, I don't think you could put an easy number to it. Okay, um, so good question, Roxanne. Um, okay, so there's a couple of things that uh, why muscle fatigue occurs. And really, in class, I had talked about muscle fatigue with respect to short-duration exercise and long-duration exercise. And during short-duration exercise, one of the key cause or key contributors to muscle fatigue is the fact that uh, you accumulate lots of um, hydrogen ions or lots of acid particles, which drops the pH. And when you drop the pH, dropping the pH causes an interaction or an interference between the binding of actin and myosin. Basically, they can't bind as well, and uh, potentially skeletal muscle contraction can be uh, compromised, which would cause fatigue. Also, you tend to have, uh, especially in very strenuous exercise, not enough ATP being produced. And again, this is another cause of fatigue. If you look at long-duration exercise, uh, one of the key contributors to fatigue during long-duration exercise isn't the accumulation of hydrogen ions because you're not really using anaerobic glycolysis, and it's not really associated with the inability to make ATP. What it's really associated with is the fact that the sarcoplasmic reticulum, or SR, cannot release sufficient amounts of calcium to allow for the interaction between actin and myosin via troponin and tropomyosin, which was the two responses I mentioned just a moment ago in my response to Brian. Oh, does that uh, answer your question, Roxanne? Uh, so, uh, Aaron, uh, good uh, question about uh, myosin-actin interaction. Um, not to, the, to my knowledge, there is not a situation where actin and myosin, or actin, myosin, and ATP would all bind at the same time. Uh, pretty much, it's an either-or process. Either myosin binds actin, or myosin binds ATP. Uh, we know this to be particularly the case because uh, if you look at um, the condition called rigor mortis. Rigor mortis occurs when the body has no ATP. 
And if the body doesn't have ATP, then it can't disconnect uh, actin and myosin, and it causes the muscles to go into a rigid state. Now, eventually, over time, as the uh, the body essentially starts to decompose, and eventually this actin-myosin binding will break down. Okay, so we got a question about uh, something from an aerobic dance class. Um, I have no idea what I don't know what the I have no idea who the instructor is or anything like that. I don't know what they're basing their information on. I'm just telling you that, you that, and I'll show you guys some information in class, but based on the available literature, uh, the rice treatment, uh, well, of, of all those things in the treatment, probably the only thing that will really help with muscle soreness is uh, the rest. Uh, really, there's nothing you can do to uh, facilitate a quicker recovery time. But um, I guess if you have soreness, ice is an analgesic, and it will cause some uh, pain relief. So it may be useful on that end. But other than that, I, it really doesn't do a whole lot in terms of um, speeding recovery from muscle soreness. And keep in mind, muscle soreness isn't a bad thing. Muscle soreness is a good thing because it actually is an indication that the body is preparing to adapt. 